That is a good truth. A good truth in these days. Well, my assignment is to tell you the meaning of life today. I feel like if my role is to be the sage, I should have a big gray beard or something and uh, I'm more comfortable be- being a lippy prophet than I am being a sage. But um, we'll do what we can. What is the meaning of life? Well, that depends on what you believe. Our Father and our God, I thank you for this time together this morning. I pray that you would lead us into truth. Your word is truth. Christ is truth. Father, we thank you that you alone are honest to us. You are the God of truth. I pray, Father, that we might resonate with what we Study today from your word as it relates to the meaning of life. Oh God, we thank you. I thank you that, that you bring meaning to life. Lord, uh, you alone bring meaning to life. And I pray this morning as we take some time to review the reasons that we believe, the, the truth that we believe, the ability that we would have to be able to speak to others of the hope that we have, I pray, oh God, that you would Uh, lead our thinking, open up our minds to understand. I pray, Father, that you might help us to um, assimilate and assess the realities of, of, of the logic of who you are and what you bring to uh, our lives. So, Father, I pray if there's someone here who is still wrestling with the reality, the, the, the meaning of life, still wrestling with Does their life have meaning and purpose? Oh God, I pray that that we might together uh, wrestle through that reality and that we might come to a conclusion that that is quite awesome as we understand who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Well, let me frame what I want to do this morning with you with a great psalm, Psalm 104, that it might establish us on a firm biblical foundation of truth. Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the pine trees. 
The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the conies. The moon marks off the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you, to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God. Well, we, um, we're asking the question, is there meaning to life? What is the nature of life? How do we answer this question? Some years ago, and many of the books that you read on apologetics on this subject, they all go to the same illustration. Several years ago, the Humanist Society put forth an uh, advertising campaign. Many of you saw it. If you traveled in the U.S., I'm not sure if it appeared in Canada. It, I, it may have. There were billboards that went out that said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. When you think about that slogan and you uh, sort of dissect it a little bit, the question comes up is, if God didn't exist, would life be enjoyable? If God didn't exist, would we be without worry? And, and more importantly, I think, as you try to unpackage that slogan is, is it probable that God doesn't exist, or is it more probable that God does exist? And so when you're exploring the nature of the meaning of life, it really comes down to your worldview. And does your worldview answer or address the big questions of life? Andy Bannister of the Canadian version of the Ravi Zacharias ministry wrote this, if your worldview can't explain the world, don't reject the world, find a new worldview. This morning I intend to propose uh, six questions to you, and uh, uh, what we're going to do is sort of ask the question, does your worldview explain these questions? Because these are critical questions to understanding the nature and meaning of life. If your worldview doesn't work, Change your worldview. The new atheists, of course, and when I mean the new atheists, I'm talking about people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. The new atheists contend that faith is the opposite of reason. In other words, those who do not believe in God are avowed atheists, 
intellectuals, by the way, of our culture for the most part, uh, propose that uh, faith and reason are antithetical to one another. You can either have faith or you have reason, but you can't merge the two. I hope by the end of our time together this morning that I'll debunk that idea because, in fact, I would submit to you that atheism and reason are at opposite ends. That, in fact, it is impossible to be an atheist and, a, and, and be a logical, reasoning person. But that's my bias, I would presume. So is faith, the question that really pops up this morning is, is faith in God reasonable? Because if we're going to understand the meaning of life, we have to really answer that question. Is faith in God reasonable? The culture and the time we live in is what I would call post-pagan. I've said this to you before. The reason I call it post-pagan is because pagan cultures have always, believed, always had a worldview that was filled with gods. But the worldview that we see now is devoid of God. What we're seeing now is a, is a um, quick migration into the world of complete materialism. The world and the culture that we're growing up in is not a world that's looking to God or gods, but rather to material. Everything is to be explained by what you can feel, by what you can see, by what you can touch. It's a materialistic world, the world of material. God of this age is materialism. And whatever science can't measure, it ignores or explains away. Um, And so I I want to, uh, as I said, share with you six questions this morning. And the first one, the first question was posed actually by two philosophers by the name of Leibniz and Sartre when they asked the question, why is there life at all, let alone meaning? In other words, before we can really establish the question or the answer to the meaning of life, we have to break apart that question and ask, why is there life at all, let alone meaning? Uh, That needs to be explained. That needs to be considered. How does science, particularly atheistic science, answer this question that we have something rather than nothing? As we look around here this morning and we see that there is something, how can science, in the absence of uh, of, uh, admitting that there is a God, explain this something from nothing? Well, they they do have an explanation. But we all know that logically everything has a cause, or there can be no effect, except whatever is at the front of the line. Whatever at the front of the line has to be the first and uncaused cause. Now, without God, we're left to believe that uh, that first cause is simply material, is simply inanimate material, that somehow matter existed. Now, um, There are several logical um, steps you need to get to in terms of answering the question how things exist. And there are three possibilities. One, it is eternal. Two, it's made by something eternal or it's self-made. The only way anything exists is it's either eternal, it's made by something internal, or it's self-made. Aristotle Uh, The Greek philosopher said this, without God or something like God, there is no explanation for why anything exists. Um, Atheists propose that there is life because of and from no life. 
At the front of the line of atheism is, not, is no life. It's simply matter. So what's the uncaused cause of the universe in the atheist worldview? Well, there really is nothing. There's no uncaused cause. There, for something to create, it must first exist. And chance, which is their basic philosophy, is nothing. Christianity, on the other hand, is the starting point that there is life because there was life. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was God. John 1.1 talks about in the beginning was the Word. And that is the assumption that there always was an eternal, uncaused cause who we call God, the living one. It stands to reason logically that there is life because there was life. Interestingly, uh, Kitty Ferguson, in her book, Stephen Hawking, um, His Life and Work, uh, a book published in 2011, uh, is in one section is, is speaking of his, his um, assessment of computer viruses. And, uh, by the way, Stephen Hawking is now an avowed atheist. He was an agnostic at, at best, an avowed atheist um, physicist, and uh, many of you know that the theory of everything, the uh, movie is, is about to be released, or it has been released, I've, I'm not sure, um, but I can assure you it's riddled with lies. Um, Stephen Hawking uh, argues that computer viruses, in, in speaking of artificial intelligence, um, Hawking warns the world, and quite frankly, I, I agree with his warning of artificial intelligence, and uh, he, he makes a cautionary note by saying, that computer viruses should be considered a new form of life, uh, man-made form. And then he, he's quoted as saying this, maybe it says something about human nature that the only form of life we have created so far is purely destructive. Talk about creating life in our own image. Well, um, the, uh, answering the question, why is there life in terms of your worldview does your worldview answer the question, why is there life at all? And I would submit to you that the atheist cannot, the atheist model cannot answer that question, why is there life? There's no probability, no reasonable explanation that they have for life. By the way, um, in the suggestion uh, from uh, um, science, uh, particularly the first law of thermodynamics that matter cannot be created nor destroyed, that uh, first law of thermodynamics, which is what they, which is what atheists uh, ride their entire foundation of the existence of matter, therefore it explains the existence of things, has uh, fallen into uh, distressful times in the science community because um, it has been proven that protons decay now, which means that matter doesn't always exist. And it also requires in an expanding universe that uh, hydrogen continue to be manufactured or appear or simply by chance be established. There is no good explanation for, an, for the uh, model of an expanding universe which requires the production of hydrogen to uh, fit into the model of the first law of thermodynamics. There are great problems with science's effort to explain away the existence of God. Christianity claims that there is life because there was life. That God is the eternal, uncaused God. God is not an effect because he is eternal. 
He does not require a cause. Matter, on the other hand, is lifeless. It can't produce life. You would require purpose by accident and intention unintentionally. There's a second question that I want to look at this morning in, in terms of your worldview, and can it answer this question? And it is this Why is the universe comprehensible? It's an important question when we're talking about the meaning of life. Why is the universe purposeful, explainable, organized, mathematical, predictable, rational, law bound? If it is a random, if it is the result of something that's entirely random, it makes, no, it, it makes no sense logically that it would be organized, mathematical, predictable, and rational. Is it by design or by chance? When you are observing with simple reason and logic, how do you answer this question? Why is the universe comprehensible? In um, Mark McCutcheon's book, The Compass in Your Nose and Other Astonishing Facts About Humans, he uh, creates some interesting pictures and ideas of the, uh, the astounding complexity of the human body. And uh, in one of them, he just begins by establishing a, a picture, uh, starts to pa paint a picture of, uh, for his audience of, of, a, of, a, of a, a, a nice day with a barbecue and a, and a, and a nice ballpark frank on that barbecue just grilling there sizzling away until it's at the spot where it's just about ready to go into it's just perfect you know it's got that that black covering on top of it it's just ready to go in the bun now and you just take some zucchini relish and you slither it all over there and you just put some mustard on it liberally and then some diced tomatoes and and then you top it off with some caramelized onions and are you getting a feel for that are you, are you is it right now I mean what an amazing mind we have that we can taste it right now we don't have it we our mind can create from, uh, from a, a, a remembrance, a memory, a taste sensation, a, a sight sensation, a, a feel sensation. The immensity, the amazing complexity of our lives. Our brain has more than 100,000 chemical reactions which occur in the brain each second. Requiring huge amounts of energy. Can you imagine 100,000 chemical reactions occurring in most of your minds? <laughs> each second. Each second. In fact, the brain can burn as many calories in intense concentration as the muscles do during exercise. That's why thinking can feel as exhausting as a physical workout. That's why i got to have a bag of cookies in between the two services. i got to fuel up. Because... It has no nerve endings. The brain can be burned, frozen, or cut without the slightest sensation. In fact, neurosurgeons often are able to operate without anesthesia. By electrically stimulating the temporal lobe, a surgeon can probe a patient's memories, bringing back to life vivid recollections of forgotten sights, sounds, and smells. I did that without probing the brain this morning. Our eyes are amazing. Our tears are a wonder in themselves. With every blink, the eyes are bathed with a bacteria-fighting fluid secreted by the lacrimal glands in the lining of the eyelids. The tears caused by irritants differ from tears caused by sadness. Emotional tears contain 24% more proteins, but certain, uh, both, both contain prolactin, the hormone that stimulates milk production. 
This may explain why women cry more often than men. The skin is a natural protector. Blood vessels in the skin will shrink instantly if it is cut or if pressure is applied. To observe the reaction, run the edge of a ruler over your forearm. The white line that appears is caused by a sudden loss of blood volume. In the case of a cut, that, this will help limit bleeding. A few seconds after you remove the ruler, the vessels will once again fill with blood and the line will turn red. Who taught our body to do these things? The body is many things. A temple, a warehouse, a laboratory, a pharmacy, an electric company, a library, a utility company, and a sewage treatment plant. <laughs> we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully, accidentally, randomly, inexplicably alive. Yeah? I don't think so. Why is the universe comprehensible? Why do things work out according to mathematical calculations? Why is the speed of light always the same? Why is it that we can use it as a constant to determine energy or mass? If atheism is true, human opinion is not legitimate. Opinion is not a legitimate result of a chemical reaction. It just isn't. On the other hand, if, or, or if evolution is true, when, when is the mind evolved enough to, to really be trustworthy? Darwin was, was, it was claimed that Darwin said this, when is the mind evolved enough? Does anybody trust the convictions of a monkey? Maybe we're not far enough along to be trusted either. When is the mind evolved enough to really be trustworthy? Maybe the universe is being piloted by a bunch of idiots. If you don't believe in God as the origin, on what basis can you trust your own mind? It was just a chemical reaction. How can it have an opinion? Is that opinion legitimate? There's a third question that I want to propose this morning that has to fit into your worldview, and it is this. Why do people have an eternal longing? Why do people have an eternal longing? Why are people not satisfied with the things of this world? C.S. Lewis, in his outstanding and foundational book, Mere Christianity. By the way, have you read Mere Christianity? How many have read that book, Mere Christianity? It's, it's central to our faith to read that book. It's in the library, but the first service already took it out, so you won't be able to get it. You need to read that book. He writes this, if I, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, you need to know something about C.S. Lewis. He began as an atheist, made a migration to Christianity. Why does a businessman desert his spouse for his secretary or empty his bank account for an exotic vacation? Or trade in his minivan for a Maserati? Why? Why are people like that? If there's no eternal transcendent God, why are people's longings so lofty? How does your worldview answer that question? The, um, the sage that was proposed to be Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. At least it's the son of David, the teacher anticipated that it was Solomon. 
He starts out his book this way. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's not normally a book that you continue to read. But he goes on as he tracks, as he, as he himself looks at the world. He, he does this observation of all things. He observes people. He observes uh, labor and work. He observes the animal kingdom. He, he observes uh, uh, entertainment and, and all kinds of ideas. He observes with his eyes the things of this world and realizes that, that in the absence of God, everything is meaningless. And he writes this critical statement in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, in describing the reality of human beings. And he says this, He, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He makes this critical statement in terms of answering, in terms of offering a worldview explanation as to why people long for something greater, something beyond them, something transcendent, something beyond. All anthropologists will tell you that human nature is to look for something, something beyond. Why is that? Because God has placed in the imago Deo, the image of God, eternity, a sense of eternity in all human life. Unlike the animal kingdom, we long for something beyond ourselves. We long to understand the nature of the transcendent. We look up into the evening sky and say, there must be more than this. This moves us toward the meaning of life. Augustine said this, unless the restless heart finds rest in the heart of the other world God, it continues to ask, is that all there is? And, and, and uh, Solomon writes here of the frustration of, of having this sense of eternity locked up in our finite bodies, locked up in our finite thinking, longing to burst free, longing to, to be who we really ultimately will be in the eternal presence of the transcendent God. There is this longing in the heart of men and women to search, to know what is there, what is out there, who is out there. And this frustration because we're eternal, because we're trapped in this finite body. That's why he talks about us. We cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Solomon goes through this very interesting and, uh, development here in, these, in Ecclesiastes 3, 11 and 12. He talks about the depths of God being unfathomable to the finite mind of man. Yet that we think about him legitimizes the fact that we are in his image. That's what he points out here. And, and, and that image is revealed when we, we actually, from it, do good. And so he encourages, he says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. In other words, vaulting themselves from the recognition that in the image of God, he has called us to enjoy everything that he's given to us and to live life to the fullest. That's why Jesus came and said, I've come to bring you life and to bring it to you abundantly. Not that you might settle for meaninglessness, but you might settle for the ultimate meaning of life in Christ. What you've always longed for is found. The, the end of the journey is found at Christ. Your heart is settled when you find him. 
Both the sage in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament reveal that to us. In the scriptures, the psalmist also writes, Trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because he promises to swap our desires for his desires. That's what it means there. He says, trust in the Lord. When you trust in the Lord with all of your heart, he will give you the desires of your heart because he will give you his desires. And they will now form your heart. And you can trust those desires because they've come from God. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. Why do people, fourthly, value beauty? If we are talking about the, uh, the, the distinction between a meaningful universe and a meaningless one, a purposeless one, a random one, a, an accidental one versus a purposeful, uh, intentional universe, we have to answer the question in our worldview, why do you value beauty? It's, this is a critically, uh, critical to understand that, that fundamentally humankind has this in common. And it makes no sense if we are just an independent random chemical reaction. That somehow collectively, within range, there's taste preferences that have some edges to them. But within range, we all generally have a common sense of what is beautiful and what is wonderful and what is awesome. I mean, we could take this whole group and we could, we could uh, show a, a, a brilliant landscape, a, an amazing piece of God's creation on the screen behind me, and all of us would gasp. All of us would agree it's spectacular. Now, if we're just random, accidental, unintentional chemical reactions, why would we gasp at beauty? Beauty serves no survival purpose. The arts, the literature, music, none of that makes any sense unless there is God. Impersonal mechanical results from biochemical reactions do not explain the gasp of something beautiful or a draw to something visually sensory. In a random, accidental, unintentional universe, the eyes are for finding food, for fleeing from danger, or for ferreting out the next reproductive liaison, but not for beauty. It makes no sense why Eve found the fruit of the garden pleasing to the eye, unless there is God. Because she already had everything she needed. If we're talking about just survival, Eve had more than she needed for survival. Why did she find that fruit pleasing to the eye? Your worldview has to explain why there is a value to beauty. Atheism has no explanation, no reason. Fifth question is this, why is there justice, goodness, and morality? Your worldview must explain that. Why, why do people say that's wrong, or that's right, or that's good, or that needs to be made right? Why do people talk like that or think like that? Why is the world outraged at ISIS? Or why is the uh, journalistic community in an uproar that Brian Williams misremembered his little liaison in the Middle East? If the world is just random and unintentional, it's just all about job survival, in an anti-God universe, what he did makes perfect sense. 
Animals have no sense of good or evil. Why would humans? And most of you out there are saying because we've been socially conditioned. The explanation from the unintentional, the accidental world is we've been socially conditioned for all these things. By whom? Who was at the front of the line that one day decided that's good and that's not? That's right and that's wrong. Who was at the front of the line to somehow socially condition everybody to think that way? Who was that person? Why is it universal? Why is, it, why is justice, morality, right and wrong? Why is it universal? You say, well, is it? We, we don't have to teach our kids about justice. You give me two two-year-olds in the front of the church right now, and I'll show you justice in two seconds flat. I'll give one a candy, and I won't give the other one a candy. And that other one that doesn't get the candy, go, no fair. Real fast. Now, who taught them about justice? Are they socially conditioned? No, no. It's not accidental. It's not random. It's not unintentional. We live in a universe of justice and morality and right and wrong because we live in a universe that is made by God. C.S. Lewis, in his migra migration to Christianity, struggled with the question of evil in the world. And many of us have struggled with this. If there is God, why is there evil? In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, Who told you the world is cruel? Evil. What's the measure? If there wasn't a God, where would you even get the idea or sense of good and evil, just or unjust? The fact of evil means there is a God. The fact that we recognize evil means there is a God. If God does not exist, then objective morals, values, and duties do not exist. But objective morals, values, and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists, Lewis said. Bannister says this, morality exists. If God doesn't, we have no explanation for it. Yale philosophy professor Gregory Gansel says this, moral obligations do not fit well in an atheistic worldview. So does your worldview answer the question of why there is justice, goodness, and morality? Mine does. Here's a sixth question and a final question. What do you do with Jesus, who is the Christ? What does your worldview do with Jesus, who is the Christ? And you say, wait a second, I'd have to first of all believe there is a Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. Even atheists believe in Jesus because Christianity is a historical religion. It's got dates and times, verifiable settings, events, names. Jesus is a historical fact. The intellectuals of the world don't want to appear to be unintellectual. They know Jesus is historic at very least. But what do you do with Jesus? Is the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, are these reasons for faith or reasons to doubt in God? Reasons for shutting down the idea of God and the meaning of life. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, are these an elaborate hoax or the truth? Here's something to think about. Atheists, Buddhists, Muslims, they all believe in Jesus. And they all believe he's a good man. Now, on the basis of what they believe, it's not possible for Jesus to also be a good man. Jesus would have to be a liar 
on the basis of what they believe about Jesus, he can't be a good man. He'd have to be a liar. And liars are not good people. And as one philosopher said, liars make bad martyrs. Elaborate hoax or the truth. Now, when you get to the issues of reason and faith and atheism and the meaning of life, it ultimately comes down to this. Faith must always make the journey from facts to commitment. This is not a story of uh, interesting facts and reasons to believe. This is about what will you do with those reasons. The question is simply this. Is it more reasonable that God exists or more reasonable that he does not exist? And as you look at the universe and as you look at how the universe operates, as you look at how humanity operates... The question is, is it more probable that God exists or is it more probable that God does not exist? Is it more reasonable that God exists or is it more reasonable that God does not exist? Ultimately, though, you have, to, you have to move from the reason to faith. Faith is belief. Faith is the Latin word fides, which means to trust. It means that your life is different because of what you believe, because of what you trust in. So the question is, is there meaning to life? And if Jesus is so, then yes, there's meaning to life. Have faith in God, Jesus said in John 14, have faith also in me. If there's no Jesus, then there's no God. And if there's no God, there is no meaning. Faith and reason are not at odds, I would submit. And in fact, reason established is a foundation for which faith one has. You either have faith in God or you have faith in no God. That's your decision. One way or the other. Faith in God or faith in no God. What is more reasonable? Atheism, atheism is mostly bankrupt of reason to trust there is no God. When you understand human nature, you realize that people want justice. They have a personal standard of what's right and wrong. They want to live. They want to hope. They want their life to have meaning. They really want to want God. And he is the only explanation for how the world exists. And ultimately, at the end of the line, the only one and the only answer for the meaning of life. At the end of his writing in Ecclesiastes, after he had looked at everything... And Solomon wanted for nothing. He had everything at his disposal. The wealthiest, the most intelligent man, he had it all. But at the end of it all, as he looked at everything there was, he said, I've come to the conclusion that there is only one thing that really matters, to fear God and obey his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Jesus said the same thing at his commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize people, and teach them to obey whatsoever things I command. The apostle Paul said the same thing. Paul said, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What's the meaning of life? The meaning of life is Jesus Christ. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. God gives meaning to life. There is no other explanation. There is no other logical possibility for the meaning of life. The meaning of life is God and God alone. Our Father, I, I submit what I've said to you this morning. 
for you to do your work in lives and hearts and our minds. I pray, Father, that you might help us to regain confidence that might have failed in our confidence in you. I pray, Father, that uh, we might have hope in you. I pray, Father, that we might be able to, uh, with great confidence and boldness, face those who appear to be so intelligent, so intellectual, and uh, filled with so much information, who oppose the idea or notion of God. I pray, Father, we might have a boldness and confidence because our faith is reasonable. We don't have faith because of reason, but our faith is reasonable. And so, Father, I thank you this morning for your great love for us, for your grace toward us. And Lord God, you make sense of everything. The worldview, the only worldview that really makes sense of everything is a worldview that has you as the great uncaused cause of all things. And so to you, we reestablish our loyalty, offer you our minds, our being, all that we are, for you truly are a great and wonderful God and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is this meaning of life? Well, it is this, that you have been made on purpose and intentionally by an intentional, purposeful God so that there wouldn't be billboards put up in this world that said there's probably no God, but rather so that there'd be billboards put up all over the world that would say there probably is a God because we've seen him in the lives of the people who love him. This God... uh, who we were to glorify has made it possible because we have fallen short of his glory. It's made it possible for us to have a relationship with him by the Son of God who came and died on the cross of Calvary to take our sins there that we might have forgiveness of our sins and that our real purpose for life might be found in Christ Jesus and in a relationship with him. You've been made for God. That's the meaning of life. You've been made to enjoy God forever. You've been made so that God could enjoy you. That's your purpose. It's intentional. That's the meaning of life. That we, by living out our love for God, obeying his commands, living for him, might be walking billboards that would advertise to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, there probably is a God and you need to get to know him because he's worth knowing, worth loving, and he loves you. That's the meaning of life, our Father and our God. We, we thank you so much this morning for your love for us, for teaching us your ways, for visiting us with your powerful presence. And now, Lord, I pray that you would take us in our separate ways uh, with your peace, the knowledge of God, And Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone wrestling on the edge of of atheism or agnosticism or whatever, and not turning their heart over to you, Lord God, we pray for the souls of people in this place this morning. This is about faith, about believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Father, we thank you this morning for your truth. We thank you that we get to live that truth out. Now please help us by the power of God's spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.